Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I am joined today by Will Wright. Will is a certified professional coach who is passionate about the personal development of himself and others. Will spent 20 years as a personal trainer and was growing increasingly frustrated supporting people on outer work only. Now, as a coach, Will has been able to leverage his ability to connect with his compassion in a way that significantly serves others. Will's clients have shared that he has been able to create spaces where they can truly get to the bottom of what's holding them back and ultimately be at the choice to release what's heavy, whether it's guilt, obligation, or self-doubt. From there, they take action to step into life feeling driven, confident, and motivated. On a personal note, Will has benefited from the exact processes and experiences he shares and creates for his clients. He is grateful to be able to do the very work with his clients that have provided the learning and growth that has also served him. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. This episode, the organization is called Hearts of Gold. At the end of the conversation, Will says a couple of words about why Hearts of Gold is important to him and the work that they are doing. The link is in the show notes, and please join me in donating. In the conversation with Will, we start with his own personal mind-body-spirit journey. He has had many different pit stops in his career that include being a teacher, being a personal trainer. He was very involved with ministry and church at various points in his life and career. And he looks at coaching as a sort of bridge of all of the different connections of mind-body-spirit. We also talk about what it means to hold space as a coach and how being a really good listener and being attuned to your client has nothing to do with taking them on a very specific arc or a journey. It has nothing to do with the coach being on a certain level above the client and teaching them, stringing them along in a way that says, you know, as a coach, I'm over here and you are below me as a client. Will has a really powerful refined quality of his listening, such that whatever is meant to unfold in the conversation with his clients is going to emerge. And I really trust that he holds a sacred and healing space. We talk about how exhausting it can be to lean on specific roles that you might play in your life. And with Will, and this has also been the case for me, being really dependable and being a helper, someone who's there for other people can be really exhausting. And we talk about what it means to have a powerful self-care practice and putting your own oxygen mask on first. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Will has for us today. William, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. A quick shout out to Terry and, and thank you for the introduction. I, I hope that you're listening, Terry. And 
I believe that I said this to you yesterday in, in preparation for the conversation, but the way that I start almost every interview is by asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> what was it like at my dinner table growing up? The truth is I can't really remember having a lot of moments at a dinner table with my family. Thanksgiving was probably the only time that we collectively were all together at the same time for the same reason. Mm -hmm. Other than that, we kind of were always spread out when it came to when we ate, what we ate, you know. So I don't have a lot. I really can't think about a lot of times or conversations we had at an everyday dinner table. At the Thanksgiving table, the conversation was probably about the year in review, mm -hmm. you know, things we're grateful for, things we would like to see happen in our lives, and maybe, you know, a crazy cousin conversation, you know, mm -hmm. or an uncle, like, what did, you know, what did uncle so-and-so do this, this time, you know? Mm -hmm. But other than outside of the Thanksgiving, you know, table, I didn't have a lot of dinner experience with my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the reasons I ask the question is because it usually demonstrates some sort of snapshot of what the family life was like. But I think the primary reason that I ask it is because I want to know a little bit about your essence. What were you like as a child? What did you like to do? And yeah, like what what, uh, what lit you up when you were younger? Well, I, I definitely spent a lot of time by myself when I was younger. I can remember spending a lot of time in my room, being alone, listening. Some of my favorite things to do was listen to the rain. Rain, mm. the sound, the sound of raining being in rain was something that always lit me up. And singing, I loved to sing. Mm. Whenever I had an opportunity to sing, I would sing. And so those are some of the things. I was I was very simple. Mm -hmm. I wasn't I didn't expect a lot and didn't need a lot as a child. I just often spend a lot of time by myself, mm -hmm. listening to the rain, singing, love music, all kinds of music. And the, as I, you know, got exposed to different kinds of music, there isn't pretty much, I can't think of a kind of music I don't like. You know, mm -hmm. I, I have my favorites. So the sound of rain and live music, mm -hmm. that's what lit me up as a kid. Being able to sit in the window seal, you know, sit in the window, listen to the rain, hit the window seal, was so soothing, so relaxing for me. And whenever I wasn't singing, listening to music, my choice was always classical, live music, things like that. Love mm. instruments. Mm. So that's what lit me up as a kid. Mm. And it kept me grounded and calm as a kid mm. growing up. I share your love for the sound of rain. I, I don't necessarily love being outside when it's pouring rain and, and when there's a gust of wind in my face and when I'm getting soaked, but there is something really soothing for the nervous system about being inside and being cozy, looking outside at the rain and hearing hearing the sound of rain. It's a, a very fascinating answer. And I know a little bit about where you began professionally in, in your career, but if we fast forward a little bit from childhood, where did your career begin and, and what do you think informed the initial career choices that you made? Growing up, I, I, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. 
I loved being around animals, learning about animals. I used to get these monthly animal cards in the mail. And so for as long as I can remember, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian and be out in the wild recording, you know, the animals and stuff. I believe the show was Wild America with Marty Stafford. So for many years, I thought I was going to be, you know, a veterinarian or an animal explorer. I don't remember why that never happened outside of the fact that I was probably mostly afraid to be around a lot of those animals. The idea <laughs> of being out in the wild, I was like, who's going to be out in the jungle in the bushes? Like, it just wasn't for me. And I realized, like, all right, maybe that's not going to be the career path. Maybe I'm not going to be a veterinarian. I'm never going to be out in the wild recording, you know, animals. For a long time, I didn't really have a sense of direction. I never really knew what I wanted to do. I knew I loved to sing, so I figured, hey, one day I'm going to be an entertainer and a singer. And I know that drew me into the church, the, the love of singing and entertaining and just the theatrical part of it, right? To be up there in front of the congregation and sing and being acknowledged and praised. So for a long time, I thought I was going to be a, um, an entertainer of some sort. Being in and around the church did lead me down the path of youth ministry, you know, as I'm getting older, youth ministry. So I kind of felt like I had this special ability to connect to people, mm -hmm. right? So I was like, then obviously I need to become a minister, right? And that became my ambition. You know, I want to become a minister. I'm going to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And so for a while, that was my calling. I'm going to be a minister. Still wasn't really sure, no real sense of direction. I wasn't a good student. I got in trouble a lot in school. I was thrown out of a few schools. People really didn't know how to deal with or, you know, challenge or filter my energy. I just was mm -hmm. always, if I wasn't in the window listening to the rain, then I was running around insane. <laughs> I got a, a job working as a camp counselor one summer. And my timelines are always messed up. So I don't remember exactly how old I was or what year it was, but I had gotten a job as a camp counselor. That led me to believe that my calling was to work with the youth. So I became a preschool teacher. It started from like this summer youth program I found where it's like, I don't even remember how I found it, right? I don't, for the life of me, I can't remember how I found this program, but it was a, it was a college prep program that I was doing that then placed us in various jobs that we were interested in. And I told them very adamantly, I want to work in preschool. So they put me in a preschool teach in a preschool teaching situation. They introduced me to a program called Basic Trust, which is on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And so I worked at Basic Trust for a few years as a preschool teacher. And then from there, I went on to work at, um, I believe at the time it was called Park West Montessori. I know they changed the name now, but it was on um, 103rd and Central Park West. Mm -hmm. So then I just felt like, yeah, this is my call. I'm going to be a preschool teacher and I'm going to go on and make a great influence in, you know, influence in many of these different communities, being a teacher. But again, I really didn't have a real sense of focus. While working as a preschool teacher, I just wasn't really very fulfilled. And for the life of me, my connection to my church told me that I need to go back into working in the church. So 
I decided that I wanted to start my own ministry called Water. It was ambition, truth, enrichment, and righteousness. And no one couldn't have told me otherwise. Like, that was it. My calling is to start this non-for-profit organization that's going to enrich the world through the love and teachings of Jesus Christ. Part of my ministry, I decided to be, get certified as a personal trainer mm -hmm. to bring this full circle approach, you know, mind, body, and spirit. So I went on and got certified as a personal trainer. Let's say the whole church situation didn't really work out according to plan. And at this point, I'd already quit being a preschool teacher because I said it was my last year working as a preschool teacher. I was going to work one more summer at this camp I was working at as a camp pastor. And then I was going to go full steam into ministry. The transition from that summer to what I thought was going to start with my ministry, it just all fell apart. And so I had no job. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was a certified personal trainer. So a friend of mine was managing the gym on the Upper East Side, and they said, why don't you just come in for an interview? You are a certified trainer. You've been kind of training part-time for about a year now. I said, sure. So I went to New York Sports Club on 91st and 3rd Avenue. I interviewed for the job, and the rest was history. I was there for 10 years, top-performing trainer, doing very well. And then after that, while working as a trainer, I kind of wasn't completely fulfilled because again, I, I felt like I had a deeper calling, a deeper, a deeper purpose in holding space and providing services for individuals. A lot of that had to do with my own personal struggles with depression and anxiety. You know, I had this, you know, I had this moment in my life where I felt like I couldn't get over my struggles. So my job was to get other people over their struggles. Mm -hmm. With that, with that mindset, it, it made me or it got me to thinking that what people needed and wanted was not on the other side of a squat or a push-up or even losing 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 100 pounds, right? So it was at that moment I decided I wanted to take what I did a little deeper. So I, I moved from this mindset of being like a personal trainer to a wellness advocate really trying to instill a holistic approach to people's health and wellness. Again, the fuel behind all that was this belief that, you know, if I can't help myself, then I'll help others. And that belief was a very motivating belief, right? It really bring a lot of passion, desire to just do better, to show up more for individuals. But that mindset also started to break me down a lot, really started to break me down a lot. And I wasn't really sure how to escape from that spiral, right? People have been telling me for years, you're so much more than a personal trainer, wellness advocate, you should become a life coach. Mm -hmm. I resisted it with every, every fiber, right? The whole thought, the word, the idea, everything of a life coach just sounded, it didn't sound real. I didn't understand what a life coach was, what they do, right? It, it just, it felt... It didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel real. It felt like I just had no interest. You know, I didn't understand it. During the pandemic, you know, while in quarantine, the short version of the story is I decided to just go ahead and try out a life coaching program called IPEC, which is the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. I signed up to do one of their modules 
And after the first weekend, I was sold. I said, here it is. That was the missing piece to the puzzle. The, the coaching program gave me the opportunity not only to really learn how to hold space for others, but to protect myself from the emotional attachment to, you know, to people's individual goals. And so, as I've always said when I'm asked this question, I'm very grateful for the opportunity and education that I got from this coaching program. And with that, I became a product of the product. And it also helped me start to deal with and focus more on some of the things that I was struggling with. Mm. So as a life coach, you know, I specialize or approach it from a personal development standpoint. And for me, personal development is not only personal, but it's the idea that we're able to look at areas of our life and find, you know, places where we make some improvements. But the first starts with being more, you know, aware of who we are and why we do what we do or why we don't do some of the things we want to do. Mm. Well, thank you, William, for sharing all of that. It, it really paints a colorful picture of your come from and the, the different ways you bounce around and really a full that you mentioned mind, body, spirit in there. And it seems like a lot of the swipes you took in your career were attempts at reconciling. How, how do all of these things intersect with each other? And it sounds like at least for now that coaching is, is probably the best intersection of uh, mind, body, spirit among, among other things. And there's lots of different directions we can go. I, I was mentally flagging different things as we went along, but I'd be curious to hear what in the in the coaching training, before we get into maybe what you do with your clients now, what were some of the biggest personal shifts that you made while studying at IPEC and, and learning the different tricks of the trade, tools of the trade? You mean like the biggest takeaway from the program? Yeah, it's like you said within the first weekend or the first week that you were, you were sold right away. So I'd be curious to hear like, what did, what did it open up in you? Oh, absolutely. For me, it was the power of transparency mm. and the foundation principles of the program gave me the opportunity to face some of my deepest fears. Mm. And for me, vulnerability is extremely hard. The idea to let people in, and see the truth, even if it's a truth you created for yourself, right? Even if it's not actually really true, but it's all about your mindset. And that's where it was. It's the ability to understand your mindset and why you feel the way you feel and why you process the world the way you process the world. Mm -hmm. And how is that serving you, you know? The program instantly told me and, and showed me what the power of choice is, right? How powerful choice is and what that means to you as an individual. And I was blown away, right? I was blown away about how the program taught me how to be transparent and be honest. And when you're transparent and honest, then you have all the information in front of you. And then you're able to take that information and say, how is this serving you? Is it working for or is it working against you? And then I was able to start to put aspects of my life into that perspective. And a lot of things 
was serving me tremendously, you know, tremendously. And a lot of things weren't. And through the program, I was able to figure out, you know, how to how to how to deal with those things. Mm-hmm. You know, how to put those things into perspective. And it instant it didn't it didn't take long. You know, it was this whole idea about reframing, right? The first weekend was a lot about reframing, you know, reframing your mindset, you know, believing that you have the ability and right to to, to feel how you want to feel and live the way you want to live. It empowered me to understand that I could exist outside of a construct that may have been given to me or taught to me. It allowed me to see that no matter what you're afraid of, you don't have to be afraid to admit that out loud and face those fears. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wait a minute. If I'm feeling all of this just from the first, you know, 24 hours, <laughs> you, you've got my interest now. <laughs> you, you've, you've got my attention. So yeah, the biggest takeaway from that first weekend in this program was the power of choice mm-hmm. and how to achieve that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear, there was a bit in there about, and this feels true for almost anyone, for certainly many, many people. Mm-hmm. There's there's these competing desires of, or seemingly competing desires around like, I'm really scared to be vulnerable and to be seen and to be transparent. And also, I deeply want to be seen and and transparent. I want I want to be accepted exactly as I am. What were some of the ways that you were maybe scared to be seen? Like what was what was the thing you were guarding? But I, I certainly could share a little bit about myself too, because one of the reasons I got into coaching was that for what seemed like the first time in my life, I was I was able to show up as Michael in all of the ways that I'm Michael and not the the versions that I thought were maybe expected of me or the more polished, celebrated versions of myself. So what were some of the parts of yourself that you, you didn't want to be seen, that it was tough to be vulnerable with? You know, that's... that's you probably asked the hardest question you could have asked me because to answer that question takes me to those dark places. Mm. I never really understood why I was so, and it makes me emotional. I never really understood or could figure out why I was always so afraid. Mm. And even as I talk about it, you can see I get a little choked up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just always in my head, always trapped in my head. You know, there were days I'd wake up and I couldn't move, but I had to. Mm-hmm. And I was so ashamed of not really understanding what was going on, you know, and no one really had answers for me. You know, the answers I would always get were, be let go and let God. Just give it all to God. And so I embraced the church big time, big time. But the church really never had the answers for me. But I would try harder. 
No, try harder. I never had the answers. And because I couldn't figure it out and no one else had the answers for me, I just believe I was broken. So this shield I put up was so no one can see how broken I was. Mm. So everything I struggled in, I never understood why. Couldn't focus in school, hated learning. Oh, the worst thing you'd ever tell me to do is sit down and listen to a teacher. They have nothing, you know? I couldn't keep still. And so there was two folds, right? When I was, when you know, for me being in church and singing was a performance. Because at those moments is when everybody just told me I was great. So I always embraced things that I could hide behind. So for me, yeah, vulnerability and the fear of it was that people were going to see who I really was. This person that was afraid and broken, and I wouldn't be able to explain to them why. I wasn't abused growing up. People on my block thought I was somehow rich and wealthy. My friends used to think I had everything, all the toys, all the clothes. But it didn't matter. I just really, really, you know, was always afraid. I was always afraid to not know something. I was always afraid not to be able to do something. So I really battled in my head a lot with my mental health. And so, yeah. So I put up a wall. And whatever it I was doing in life that validated me or made people say, wow, you're doing a great job. That became the thing I did. Mm. Whatever it was. And some of them weren't. So let's just say good. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, and that's how I lived life for so long. People thought I was a good singer. I wanted to sing in church every day. People thought I was a good athlete. I wanted to play that sport every day. Mm. So my, my relationship with vulnerability is people seeing how broken I thought I was and not being able to explain why and just being ashamed that I felt that way. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I wanna say you and me both, you and me both, my friend. I, for large chunks of my life, especially one of the most evocative times in my life when it comes to feeling broken and maybe looking around and, and seeing like, it seemed like everyone else had their shit together and that I was walking around scared and, and broken is a good word for it. Directionless, aimless. And on a surface level, I, I've always had this calm exterior. And, and so like you, I, I have this kind of natural way of holding space for other people and I was able to be there for other people in a way that I was not able to be there for myself. And also like you, the things that I was celebrated for, athleticism, my intellect, my analytical ability, my, my good memory, I just really leaned on them. And I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was certainly running from the parts of myself that I was scared to be seen. I'm I'm still a lot of times before a podcast recording or before I'm in, in public in front of other people, there are parts of me that get really activated around like if they if they saw what was really underneath all that mic, it wouldn't wouldn't be so good. You know, it'd be terrifying. 
And it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about the work that you and I do is that among other things, coaching is to me, it's a sacred space where someone can show up and bring all of that. And they could put down all of their other identities around, like they don't have to be the athlete or the good performing singer or the well-behaved student. I think that we we all are an amalgamation of so many other things as well and things that aren't celebrated. And you know, there's so many reasons why we probably all feel shame around this, but I, I really, one of the ways to deconstruct it and break it and to create new realities is to hear stories like you just shared. And, and it's an incredible service what you just did. So I, I really appreciate you doing that and naming that even as challenging as it might be. Yeah. You, you know, you just said something that also resonates with me. And I want to, and I, and I know I mentioned a little bit is for me, it, it started becoming the motivating force behind everything that I did this again, like I mentioned earlier, this idea that if I can't save myself, then my mission is to save others. Mm. And it kind of got reinforced from my years in the church because the church is always has this idea of service right? Sacrifice, give of yourself, you know, give, 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 give. And although you may not directly get any reciprocation from the people you're serving, that's not what you do it for, right? Mm -hmm. You're humbled. You have this calling from God. So give and serve and serve. Oh, I tried to serve so much. And then even when the service in the church just was not working for me, I became the service in life, you know? So yeah, becoming a trainer, you know, just worked. You know, these people come to you and they say, I have a goal. I need to achieve something and I don't know how to achieve it. And although I could barely get it for myself, I mean, I struggle so much with my own health and weight and all that. My mission in life was to make sure every single client I had not only set a goal, achieve the goal, but exceeded those goals. And every time I was able to help any individual on any level, it validated me. Okay, that's my calling. That's my worth. Mm. But after a while, it just wasn't working that way for me anymore. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it just became almost my prison Yeah, that I couldn't, couldn't break away from. I felt trapped. Like, wow, this is all I got. But I was afraid to walk away from it. I mean, I never let my my ability to serve and do my job ever affect it. I don't, I don't think you'll find many people that would say I, I wasn't good at what I did, at least my clients. I don't know how other trainers might feel. <laughs> <laughs> but at least my clients, you know. And so, but me not figuring out how to serve myself started creating a lot of resentment and anger towards everything I did for other people. Yeah. But I was like, what else am I going to do? You know, yeah. this is it. I didn't believe that I could be anything or do anything else but be a trainer. You know, I used to have this running message in my head. You know, Will, you're too fat, you're too black, you're too uneducated. You're good at this. You make great money. You know, even when I would tell people, you know, how successful I was, 
mostly people would tell me how successful I was because after a while I couldn't see anything but work. Mm -hmm. I couldn't see anything but service. And it just wasn't fulfilling me. After about 10 years, I'm like, what am I doing? And then I've been, I've been in this now for about 22 years now. And it wasn't until I began to believe in myself and my abilities. Here's the truth. It was when I started facing the fear. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's still a struggle. Everything, for all the success I've had, it was that fear that's held me back from mm -hmm. what I could have achieved. And I learned during, you know, quarantine, which for me was a safe place. Quarantine was so safe, so safe. And I don't say this out loud a lot, but I miss quarantine. Mm. The safety part of it. But in all things, there was advantages and disadvantages. Although it made me feel safe and allowed me to address and get ahead of a lot of my own personal fears. It also took away my ability to connect to people away from a computer screen. Mm -hmm. So when I look at what my life is like outside of quarantine, I know that I won't be able to, to progress forward until I embrace the fear as my story. And, you know, even as you can tell, I'm a little emotional even having this conversation. I can't run from the fear. I can't hide the fear anymore. I got to embrace it. Yeah. A few things that I, I really want to name here. One is that there's definitely a way in which systems, in your case, it sounds like it was the church. They, the dogma behind the messaging is that, hey, the system works. And if you're not operating well in it, then you're broken. And I think that that's a way, even if it's not the church, it might be capitalism or it might be the, the workplace that you're at, where it's like, if you're not operating well, given our structure, then you're broken. So you got to just try harder. You got to effort a little more. You have to serve more. You have to give more. And, and the dogma can be really dangerous if you're not putting your own oxygen mask on first, which is what it, it sounds like you ultimately ended up doing. There's a, another thing that really resonated with me and I appreciate, I applaud all of the courage that you've brought this entire conversation so far, but saying out loud that in a way, quarantine was a, a safe space for you. You haven't explicitly said you're introverted, but I would gather that in, in some ways you are if quarantine was a safe space for you. And I'll explicitly say I am introverted and in a lot of ways, I I'm not going to celebrate the pandemic by any means, but on a very selfish and uh, personal level, it helped to create boundaries in my life that I wasn't previously able to set. Meaning that a lot of times, and, and I actually started coaching around the same time as you, I started right as, as COVID was about to start. So yeah, in a lot of ways, I felt personally broken because I was this sensitive introverted man trying to operate in more of an extroverted type a world. And I would make a lot of plans. I just, I didn't have very good boundaries in place to manage my energy. I, I didn't know how to do that or, or that it was even an option. I just like you, I thought something's off with me because everyone else looks like they're doing just fine. I don't know what the hell is going on with me. 
And so I, I actually really appreciate you naming that because it's it's reminding me that I have, yeah, I'm really grateful for the ways that I have developed during, well, since, since COVID happened. I'm not necessarily happy that the pandemic happened and it was, it, it hurt a lot of people, but I just wanted to name that. And I think the question that I ultimately wanted to get to after naming each of these things was that almost all roads to me point back to going inwards and some form of self-love and self-acceptance. And I'm wondering how there might be lots of ways, but what are some of the ways that you started to embrace your whole self in the way that it seemed like you're able to do that for the other people in your life? Like, how were you give, 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 giving to yourself? Well, first, it goes back to what I was saying. It's, I'll take a little step back into, into you know, because I always say it was before quarantine, during quarantine, and after quarantine. That's how I'd like to break down my journey through the pandemic. It's important to note that during, in or during quarantine, I realized how exhausted I was with trying not to be myself. Mm. I found out how exhausted I was trying to create or be this person that people would love. Even if I didn't believe I was that person, mm. right? Because remember the shame was what was associated with, why don't you feel like you're other than how you feel for a lack of a better way of explaining it, right? When I began to put in the work into why I felt that way, I just started being kind to myself. Mm. I started learning the difference between self-rejuvenation, as I call it, and self-care. What does really what does self-care really look like? And for me, self-care and in the way I always try to teach it or express it is the systems you have in place before you get to that place where you're feeling defeated and broken. But it all starts from that place of transparency mm -hmm. and not beating yourself down from feeling the guilt, the shame, the anger, the fear, and really exploring why they're there in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you let grace and compassion be the guide through that evolution or through that journey or through that transparency, then you protect yourself from constantly beating yourself down. And so I just started being kind to myself. And accepting myself for who I really was and who I really am and started breaking away from these, you know, these limited beliefs, these assumptions, you know, you know, having conversations with the gremlin messages and stop trying mm -hmm. to act like they're not there. Mm -hmm. They're there. There's a reason why you feeling, you know, why you're afraid. You know, there's a reason why you're feeling unfulfilled. Explore those reasons and stop trying to run away from them. And the more I just embrace the fear and the shame with a lens of grace and compassion, it became a lot easier to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And that's not from a place of looking in the mirror saying, you're wonderful, you're great, because that's just hyping yourself up from the truth. Mm -hmm. The truth is you're sad, you're scared, you're lonely. Now let's figure out why. Mm -hmm. and do something about it. 
But if you don't come from transparency and honesty, you're just going to continue to lie to yourself. So I stopped lying to myself, stopped being mean to myself, and started being truthful with myself and kind to myself. Mm-hmm. And that's been the biggest difference. It's really incredible how some openness, compassion, and curiosity, and a real look towards the things that we're running away from can really open open the fear and release its grip on us. I think that's really a lot of what space holding is. It's holding that that non-judgmental mirror to the, the dark places that maybe we don't typically want to look. I'm finding myself curious about a couple things, and then I, I really want to get into the ways that we, we spent a lot of time, a lot of meaningful time, I might add, talking about your journey. And I, I want to get to the ways that you are supporting other folks, because I, I get the felt sense that you're doing an incredible work for your clients and for the people in your life. So before we get into that, I would love to hear, were there any, I know you're an avid reader, any books that you would recommend for folks who are resonating with your story, who feel, you know, they, they're really hard on themselves and they might even get lots of praise, but they just, there's a little bit of an unfulfilled lonely, maybe emptiness, or it could be anything, but any books that come to mind? And there are three books that I think I've had, excuse me, that I know have had the greatest impact in this personal developed journey. Mm. And although for some reason, I can't remember the author of two of them. It's okay. We'll tell you the titles of them. One is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Powerful book. It, set the tone for a lot of why I'm on this journey. The next one would be a book called Dopamine Nation. Mm-hmm. Dopamine Nation. And in no particular order, I say Darren Greatly is definitely the top of the, it's the number one uh-huh. in terms of that personal development space. Dopamine Nation was another one. And I don't know why I can't remember the author's name right now. I'm just having a little bit of brain fog on the authors, but Dopamine Nation. Well, that'll be, uh, sorry to interject quickly here, but that's that'll be my little homework. I will link to the show notes so you don't, there's no responsibility for you to remember the author. Dopamine Nation, loud and clear, I will come up with the author and I'll link it in the show notes. All right, good. And then the last one is Big Magic mm. by Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm. Those three books have had the greatest impact in my personal development journey. And Dopamine Nation, I'm going to make the assumption and correct me if it is an incorrect assumption, but it, it somehow helped you develop a better understanding of your brain. It helped me. Yeah. It, it not only helped me get a better understanding of my brain, but how people's brains work in general. It's mm-hmm. the book is basically about finding balance in a world of overindulgence. And how, as individuals, we're so used to running away from pain that not only do we not know how to deal with it, but our body actually craves it. So it has the opposite effect of the dopamine. And that's when you think about dopamine hits, right? That's why it's a very addictive you know, process, right? You want more, you want more, because you build up a tolerance from it. So it's a, it's a good way, an amazing way of understanding 
how hard it is for us to find balance in life because we don't want to deal with pain. We mm. don't know what pain, we don't like it. So we run from it and we do whatever we can to stay away from it, whether it be social media, video games, whatever it is, whatever it is that you could just be reading your favorite book, whatever mm. it is that you overindulge in for a sense of satisfaction or disconnection and relief, know that everything in life has balance. And even on the emotional, psychological, and physical level, if you don't have balance, balance will find you. <laughs> <laughs> and it sometimes can come with the path of the most resistance. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so Dopamine Nation is a book that, that talks about, you know, how hard it is for us to find balance in a world that we just overindulge in everything that we do. Because it creates a place of comfort, but it's not sustainable. Mm. You know, if you always want to lean to the sides of things that make you feel good, you forget about pain to where you don't can't even tell the difference from what is pleasure and what is pain. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's one of that. That's a book that has had a great influence on my personal journey mm. and my personal development. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I mean, one of the actually very sneaky and insidious ways that we might avoid pain is through something that ostensibly might be helping you, but it could be like you named, it could be reading a personal development book, you could overindulge in just about anything, you can overindulge in podcasts, you can overindulge in serving other people, helping other people. And so it actually leads nicely into the second question that I wanted to ask about this. And then I promise you we'll get into your coaching work. But what are some uh, personal boundaries that you have in your life? Because I, I find it it's very easy to it's a very slippery slope to get back into old patterns around overextending. For me, it's a lot of times it's people pleasing, it's saying yes to too many different things. It's uh, eating too much, it could be it's uh, any number of things. So what are some do you have any kind of bright lines boundaries that you have in your life that help you stay grounded and centered? That's always an interesting question for me as well. Because as I told you, vulnerability is something that I battle with, excuse me, and have battled with and still battle with till this day. And so a lot of times the offset that me or that fear of vulnerability, I have this sense of validation. I constantly need to be validated, you know, and being told you're doing a great job, you're doing great mm. things. So boundaries have always been kind of hard for me, right? And I'm now beginning to understand and hold space for people to understand the difference between boundaries and barricades. Mm. You know, boundaries is that emotional understanding, right? It's the way it comes from the saying I say to myself, you have to treat yourself the way you want to be treated because you can't trust others to reciprocate anything you do. Mm. So if you treat yourself the way you want to be treated, which is opposite from what I've learned my whole life, treat others the way you want to be treated. And that's that service, right? But if you treat yourself the way you want to be treated, then that is a boundary that other people can see. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I struggle with creating that boundaries because I do want to serve because I want that service to then, you know, give me that great job, Will. Thanks, Will. You did a good job. Will, so great. Will, so good. So it's like, <laughs> so saying no has always been hard for me. Yeah. 
But then there's the opposite effect to where I put up a barricade, then I avoid contact mm. and I avoid conflict. Mm. I've been known to just disappear. Mm. I'm a very consistent, reliable person. If I'm going to be somewhere, you can count. I'm not only going to be there, I'm going to be on time. It's not a person that can tell you I'm not a very reliable and punctual person. But when I shut down, I'm gone. And so to be very transparent, to answer your question, yeah, boundaries and barricades. Sometimes I don't know the difference of the two, but I work hard to create them and to have them and to also teach how important they are. Mm-hmm. So it's a struggle. That's another struggle of mine. So my greatest Boundary is really my strongest barricade. I tend yeah. to just vanish or avoid avoid people after needing to be around people. And I'm a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to say no. And I think that's another, and I know, I don't think, I know that's another reason why I get exhausted and then just need time where I don't want to be bothered because I'm yeah. so tired of doing things for people, making people feel good, holding space, listening to people. Yes. And so I'm trying to learn how to create healthier, because that's what a boundary is. It's a healthy discipline mm-hmm. of creating space for yourself. Yeah. I'll name a, a couple of things right now. One is that, well, one is just an acknowledgement of you. You said before we actually jumped on to record here that you blocked off an hour before the call and a half hour for after the call. And that in itself is, is a great boundary. I have found very personally helpful, some sort of bright lines. I'm off my phone and computer by X time in the night. For me, it's usually like 8 p.m. or so where I'm, I'm going to put my phone down. And in the morning, the first you know 30 minutes or so that I'm awake, I find that helpful. And I, I think those are those are nice, healthy boundaries as maybe templates for the listener to use as things that can help so that we don't get into that shutdown mode, because I am too familiar with that as well, where I'm going, I'm going, I'm reliable, I'm not going to be late, I'm punctual. And then next thing I know, I'm crashing. And to be proactive is it's a very important skill. So I, I just wanted to name that. Another thing that is coming up for me right now and you, you mentioned Brene Brown with Darren Greatly before, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but Brene Brown has said that the people with the best, have you heard this? The people with the best boundaries have what characteristic? What? It's, it's compassion. Actually. Compassion, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was about to say, wait. Yeah, she said compassion. I believe she said it on her podcast once too. Yeah. And I find that to be, uh, it's fascinating that the people that have the best boundaries are the people that have the most compassion. And I think that where that probably comes from is that they that compassion extends to themselves too. And with that comes maybe a deeper self-love, self-awareness and ability to say no. It's not, you're not as buried in the story of what it means to say no or trying to manage the other person's emotional experience. And so I, I think that's a, it's an interesting tidbit to drop in. And from here, would love to talk about the beautiful work that you're doing as a life coach. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's just start with, let's just say a, a person is showing up to work with you mm-hmm. 
and they they might be experiencing some of the same challenges that we've addressed in this conversation so far, right? Like they're they're getting approval and praise for all the different ways that they're showing up in their life, but there's a little bit of an emptiness and unfulfillment. Where would you begin with said person? Well, to start, I'm just a facilitator, right? My, you know, approach as a coach is to just first let the individual know that they're in a safe place, that there are no agendas, there are no opinions, there are no judgment, there's no outcome that I am coming to a coaching session with. My job is to hold that space for them to unpack some of the things they're going through. What I learned through my training is one, stay outside the box. It's not about me. It's not about how I'm feeling. It's not about what I'm thinking. My job as a coach and my approach as a coach is when I hold that space for them to unpack, I'm listening to what they have to talk about, but I'm coaching the energy behind the story. I'm not involved in the story. And so every coaching session starts with, what do you want to talk about today? And I allow them to talk and to hear what they're saying. And I help them hear what they're saying. And then we explore what it is they're saying and what is behind what they're saying. And through that, you hear maybe a little confusion. Mm -hmm. Maybe you hear a little frustration. Maybe you hear some motivation. And sometimes they just don't trust what they're feeling. My job is just to organize it and mirror it back to them and see how it resonates for, with them and allow them to decide what they want to do with the information what they want to do with what comes up. Like I said, I facilitate the understanding and the power of choice. And in life, you know, for me, I think it's very important. So when someone comes to me, I don't have an agenda. Mm -hmm. I have a safe place. So that's how I approach a coaching session. It's, it's something that's kind of hard to always explain to someone. Yeah. And honestly, I stopped trying to explain it. Uh -huh. And I'm just going to let my work speak for myself. And, you know, early on, I spent a lot of time trying to defend or explain what a life coach is. And I just tell people what I do. Uh -huh. I help individuals achieve the power of choice. Mm -hmm. Because it's your most powerful weapon you can have. Mm. And I do that by giving them a safe, non-judgmental place to explore whatever parts of themselves they want to explore, how deep they want to go. Mm -hmm. We talk about it. Yeah. There's this belief, and I certainly came into coaching with this come from, with this conditioning. There's a belief in coaching that it there's very much a point A and a point B, and the coach has some sort of agenda and structure in place to take the client from point A to point B. And what I'm hearing in, in your approach is that 
when you provide that non-judgmental safe space, there's an organic unfolding that happens. And I think in, I have certainly been on the giving and receiving end of this type of coaching. What happens when in that space is that your highest potential starts to unfold naturally over time. And the highest potential could be in the moment, unburdening yourself of the pain that you've been hiding from, or if there's enough processing that goes on, the highest potential could be saying that vision out loud for your life that you were scared to say aloud to other people because you thought maybe they would laugh at it. And I think it's, it's a really, I think I've said sacred in this conversation, but coaching can be a really sacred place to show up with whatever feels near, dear, and true to you. And, and I really hear that in your approach. And I, I can feel that as we're talking that there is, there really is a, a lot of people say there's no agenda and that they, they're there to hold the space, and I can really feel that that's true with you energetically. And, and that's something you spoke to in your answer as well, is that you are, you're listening in part to the story that the client is saying, but you're really more closely listening to the energy behind the words. Mm-hmm. The energy behind the words, because, I mean, don't get me wrong, people, have, people come to me and they want me to give them the answer. Mm-hmm. I facilitate the understanding that, that they have the answer. Mm-hmm. This space that I create for them is safe for them not to be afraid to explore what those answers are. Because mm. a lot of times in life, we deal with so much judgment, so much insecurity, so much doubt, so much shame, right? And you can be having a conversation about with a good friend, like, oh, I'm going through this. Instantly, people are going to interject their relationship with that story, their feelings, their story, that opinion with their story, tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing. That's not what I do. It, we have the abilities to self-regulate and self-understand. Now, if that self-regulation and understanding comes with too much deep-rooted trauma, then as an amazing coach, I know that person needs therapy, mm-hmm. right? Because in my sessions, that's part of my training is to understand and identify when someone is not only coming from a dysfunctional place, they don't have the ability to move from that place. Absolutely, we'll tap into some of them deep-rooted traumas that we all have on some level. But we only do that in a session to understand who they are in the present so that we can move Mm. on strategic ways to move them to the future. Mm. But I am not driving. I don't even have the map, Mm. you know? Yeah. I'm just there to give them support and say, keep going, mm-hmm. keep going. However you feel is right. Is that feeling serving you or is it working against you? Okay, what are the options on changing that feeling and that thought process? Mm-hmm. Sometimes when people don't know they have choices, they don't make choices. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I'll say it better. When people don't know they have options, they don't make choices. Yeah. They just feel stuck. Don't get me wrong. Not every coaching session is coming from this deep, dark place. You know, I said before, there's no conversation too small. Mm -hmm. So there's a wide spectrum of what people will talk about. Sometimes people just need to clear their head. Our head and our minds can be a very noisy place. You know, 
And me as a coach is that through line, right? Through all that noise, I'm just like, keep coming this way. Go ahead, you got it. No, 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 you're good. No, nope, I'm not going to pick you up. I'm not going to carry you. Just keep going. You got it. Acknowledgement, you know, mm. you know, just validate, acknowledge. Ask questions that'll allow them to explore what's the possibilities of those answers or how do I feel about how I'm answering it? You know, there's this thing that I say, you know, I go to this this morning, how I know Terry, right? So my morning being I meet every Tuesday, every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. And, you know, we have this 30 second commercial we have to do every week to give people an idea of who we are, our services. And I struggle with what that commercial would be, because, again, what is a life coach? What do life coaches do? You know, that's always the biggest thing. Are we even real? Right. <laughs> and. I struggled with my commercial in the beginning because I didn't know how to, what am I going to say in 30 seconds? In the beginning, I found myself trying to defend life coaching. Like mm. I do, I can really help you. And I'm like, no, don't come that way. No, no, I don't want to say that. It's like, oh, you're in pain. I, I can take, no, don't say that. So I simply just say what I do. Power of choice. Yeah. So my commercial is simply this. How you do anything is how you do everything. And the most powerful weapon anyone can have is the power of choice. And as a personal development coach, I work with individuals on how to achieve that power. Mm. And that's what I do. Mm. I don't have a judgment. I don't have an opinion. I don't have an agenda. I have a safe place for you to unpack and explore and become more consciously aware of who you are how you see the world, how you experience the world, how the world is filtered through your lenses. And at the end of the day, are they serving you or not serving you? Mm -hmm. If they're not, what can we do? What areas are there for possibilities to develop that? And if they are, how do we keep adding some fuel to that fire? Mm -hmm. But at no point am I going to tell you what to do or how to do it. Mm -hmm. Because every individual, we all have the answers within ourselves. We just need encouragement and guidance to know that we can trust those answers mm -hmm. and not be ashamed of the answers. Mm -hmm. So in my coach certification training, I, well, I'm a, I'm a holistic, by, by trade technically, I'm a holistic health coach from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And one of the first tools that we had was what they called the circle of life or what you would maybe call the dimensions of your well-being. And in the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, I'm not going to give a completely exhaustive list, but there was your nutrition, the food you're eating, your movement, your home environment, your relationships, your finances, your spirituality. Could you speak a little bit to how you would bucket the dimensions of well-being and it, you don't need to name all of them, but maybe, you know, spotlight or highlight a couple that you find most important in your life and maybe in supporting your clients. It's an interesting question because there are many, many things I can say. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I say is dependent on what the individual is bringing to the table or going through. But I always start from, your your life filters, right? It's a it's a it's a strong thing that's taught in IPEC. 
it's all about your filters. Mm. Your filters determine how you see the world, how you experience the world. Those filters come from life experiences and the influences of people around us, you know. And that was one of the things I loved the most about the IPEC program, because it is about you understanding whether or not your filters are working for or against you, right? And how those filters make you feel. Sometimes those filters can bring you a tremendous amount of success, right? And the way I'm saying it is pretty much the way they teach it. And reading it and experiencing it are two different things. But yes, it's about how those filters are serving you in life. So the spotlight, it's about how aware are you on how you show up in various aspects of your life. And if in fact, I'm gonna say it again, that approach is serving you. Simplify it if you're consciously aware because it serves you, great. Or as a default because you didn't know any better or know any different. It's being more aware of the interplay between, you know, how what you think, what you feel, and what you do. You know, the constant interplay and how that interplay is serving you. A lot of these foundation principles and understanding can come across to be very like abstract, right? And foo-foo and aloof and like, what are you talking about? But these, but our filters do determine who we are. You know, how we see ourselves is how we see the world. And based on that is how we experience things. It's what motivates us and what, what stops us from being motivated. It's the amount of judgment and stress we place on ourselves. It determines how how well we can not only see opportunities, but go after opportunities. Our filters will determine the level of satisfaction that we actually achieve when we get to that goal. Can you imagine putting so much work and effort towards a goal to achieve it just to feel like, man, mm -hmm. how is that going to motivate you the next time there's another goal or challenge? Life is hard, mm -hmm. you know? but it doesn't have to be stressful. And when you understand your filters, you can begin to say to yourself, well, it was, was that, you know, juice worth the squeeze? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's all about being aware. Yeah. How you do anything is how you do everything. And how you see yourself is how you see the world. It reminds me of, I believe it's attributed or it might be misattributed to Einstein, but the, the quote is the most important choice we can make is whether we live in a friendly or a hostile universe. And what you're speaking about with regards to filters and our perspective and our come from the way that we project ourselves onto the world, it very much reminds me of that quote, because if you are coming from a place of the world is hostile, it's going to probably lead to more scarcity, more uh, constriction, less vulnerability, less willingness to make yourself available for other people. And if you can actually truly believe and embody that the world is a friendly place and an abundant place, then you're going to move through life a whole lot differently. And one of my first coaches and mentors. He was actually the first guest I ever had on this podcast. 
he talks about our brain being basically a projection screen, almost like when, I don't know if you were, when you were in school that you had these, but there were these little projection things and you put the the flat clear thing and then it projects onto the wall. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I love the way that he talks about the brain. Right, used to write things on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. With that black marker, right? <laughs> I was definitely a kid who probably should have stayed in his seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, what my mentor and coach beautifully articulates is that our brain is like that projector screen. And a lot of people, we spend our whole lives trying to wipe off the wall and there's a bunch of different crap on the wall and we like break out our sponge and we scrub it and we wipe even harder and it doesn't work. And all we really need to do is go to the source, the actual projector where it's coming from and wipe off the little smudge. And then the, the wall itself is completely taken care of. And the way that I, at least I interpret that lesson, that little nugget of wisdom is that if we tend to our inner world, treat it like the garden that it is, then a lot of times the the outer reality, it reforms and, and it takes care of itself. And so that's that's what I'm hearing in the way that you provide support for your clients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, thank you, because I'm going to use that. <laughs> that is a great way to explain it like this. And a lot of times in life, to take what you said deeper is we are the projector, but we don't always have, how do I want to say this? Because wow, hearing you say that just took me to a whole nother place, right? Because you realize there's people, you don't always get to decide what's on that projector, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of slides that are put on that projector of life, those filters, right? Like I said earlier, these filters that we have, they were, you know, they have been influenced from the time we were born with constructs, belief systems, ideas, expectations, you know, and many of them serve us. Mm -hmm. They've protected us. They've allowed us to achieve a tremendous amount of success. And when I say this sometimes out loud, other coaches would be like, isn't that exactly what IPEC taught you? And I'm like, why am I going to reinvent the wheel? I'm grateful for this education. So why do I have to try to find my own way to say exactly what I invested my time and money in learning? understanding my abilities to help people understand their filters. Sometimes I often wonder why I don't just say that. What do you do as a coach? I help people understand their filters. But that's so abstract to people because people are so not at choice in life. Yeah. And for me, I break down choice into three main categories, right? You have the choice aware, passionate, driven, you, and, and that brings you a lot of joy, a lot of fulfillment. Or maybe your choice obligated, right? Where you tolerate, you justify, you deal with, you accept. Or your choice default, because that's the way you were taught. You don't know any better. Maybe you don't feel like you can do anything different. Where are you at with your relationship with choice? Are you passionate and driven? obligated and justifying and tolerating or you default because you know any better. When I talk about the power of choice, it's deciding versus understanding what is being projected, how it got there, why it's there, who put it there, and what slides are 
you know, to take what you said, I told you I was going to take it, right? Yeah. Taking what you said a little further, who's deciding the projection? Sometimes we feel like we don't have a choice what's on that projection. And I'm like, no, no, no. You are the author of what's being projected. But you first have to understand where it comes from and why it's there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just took that from you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. I want that I want was them. great. That was great. When you said that, I was like, that is an amazing way to get <laughs> down. That's what well, you heard me say. Good, because that's what I said. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I I borrowed it from a coach yeah. and mentor, and I you know I think that he would want the word to continue to spread because if if we have a world that is full of people who are who feel that they have agency and choice, then I think that we're living in a much more beautiful world than people who are at what I think you said choice default or choice obligation is that really yes i broke it down choice aware uh -huh. choice obligated or choice default yeah yeah there, there's so much here about the different ways that i i think maybe i want to unpack a little some of the ways that we might develop filters that are somewhat serving us and also they might not always serve us like i i think that I'll speak from personal experience. When I was younger, I was taught about what are maybe some of the values that a good person has, right? And, and some of them that we, we've already spoken a little bit about today. A, a good person is punctual. They're a person of their word. They show up on time. They give to other people. There's all sorts of ways that that has, they work hard. That's a really big one. A good, good person, successful people work really hard. They challenge themselves, they push themselves. And in a lot of ways that has really served me and in other times, which is where I think a coach can make a really big difference in, in helping to identify the filters. There are times where we need to slow it down. We need to rest. We need to be more patient. We, we can't effort our way into everything all the time. And so really, I, I guess what I'm saying is I identifying the come from of all of our beliefs and really slowing down to understand them. Where do they come from? How do they serve me? How are they maybe not serving me? It allows us to be much more dynamic and capable human beings. I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's what we're all, I think, we're, we're trying to be the best potential version of ourselves. You know, I've continuously said, the most powerful weapon we have is the power of choice. Yep. And a lot of individuals don't believe they have that power. Mm. And a lot of time it's guilt that keeps them there, uncertainty that keeps them there, fear that keeps them there. What keeps people in no choice or no choice energy, you know, we learn IPEC, that level one energy that, you know, I don't have a choice because it's outside of my ability to control the situation. It can be different for different people. Why? Because I've learned worry and guilt are two different emotions. Mm -hmm. Although they play in the same energy playground, how they manifest or filter through an individual can be totally different, right? They're not the same, but they can have the same effect of making a person feel powerless or feel like mm -hmm. a victim. And transparency, I'd said the other day, transparency is a lonely place sometimes, mm. right? It's definitely a scary place. And that's why a lot of people have a lot more obligated or default energy in life 
because to truly have a choice of being passionate and driven, following your intuition, the world doesn't really like that kind of choice, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you have someone hurt, hungry, or scared, that's the easiest way to control them. Mm. And so a lot of the messaging we get in life says that you can't be an individual, mm. you know? And a lot of that messaging starts from when we're little, you know, mm. as we talked about the belief systems, we become hardwired. And you understand that because of the book you've already started reading and the one that I'm going to start reading. Yeah. You know, Grandma's Hands. Yeah. My grandmother's hands. My grandmother's hands. I have it. I know just from researching the book a little bit, and because I didn't read it and only listened to a few minutes of it, but it it basically talks about that hard wiring that can not only affect you in life, but can be passed down through generations. Yes. You know, and I don't I'm not an advocate of constructs. Mm. Only if they're serving you. Now, when I talk about these three levels of choices, I don't want to contradict myself as a coach in any way. I don't have a judgment on your choices. Yeah. I facilitate the opportunity for you to explore your choices and if they're serving you. Mm -hmm. So if your choice default is working for you, then keep going. Yeah. But if it's not, what are some things that, you know, that we can do to, to get you more into a powerful place with choice that's serving you. But it can be hard when it's hardwired the way it is. There's nothing about the work that's easy. If yeah. anybody ever says it's easy, then they're lying. They're lying to you, they're lying to themselves. None of it is easy. And as I said earlier, life is hard, but it doesn't have to be stressful. Mm -hmm. So, we, And the power of choice is what eliminates the level of stress that you have in your life. Because if you choose to do something, then it's not a default. If you mm -hmm. choose to do something, then you have that power. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it because it's what's expected of you or because you're afraid to be judged or left out, I don't know. That's a scary place to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something something that I want to name here because we you were you were naming it as I, I think something that maybe we all contend with. I, I like the I don't know if you're familiar with the conscious leadership group, but they they basically have a construct of above the line being open, curious, available to life, and below the line being maybe triggered, reactive, uh, constricted, mm -hmm. and something that I have found kind of liberating because it, it helps me realize that I'm not defective is that we are wired to scan our environment for threat. Like we are, it's ancestrally, it's been part of the reason that we have survived so long as a species is because we are scared most of the time. So our amygdala in a lot of ways is it hasn't adapted to the new, the modern times where we're not running from saber-toothed tigers anymore or in environments where we need to be so hyper-vigilant like we used to be. It was We were dependent on that for survival for many, many, many generations and thousands of years. But in today's world that is more sanitized and sequestered and, and secluded and we have more of a home environment, 
it doesn't serve us necessarily to be so triggered and reactive all the time, but it doesn't stop our brain from kind of, without doing lots of intentional work, we, to use conscious leadership terms, we, we are below the line a lot of the time. And it's not a, a defect as, as much as it is something to bring awareness to just, Hey, I'm, I'm below the line right now. I'm a little triggered. I'm a little scared. What's this about? And, and bringing that element of acceptance and curiosity is paradoxically what helps us be back at choice where we have agency and are available to, to do what we actually want to do instead of what our default might be. Yeah. You know, you said something very interesting. We talked about, you know, the new saber tooth tiger could be what you are expected to do. Yes. You, if you, if you've been raised to believe reacts to achieve a certain amount of things, when you can't find it, when you can't achieve it, and when you feel like you're forced into it but don't really want to do it, that becomes your internal saber-toothed tiger. You know, that's what triggers you. That's what brings about all this fear because you're thinking about the failure side of it, right? You're thinking about, you know, the judgment side of it because if we, if I don't achieve this, then I'm a failure. If I don't believe or act this way, then I'm a failure. So I look at it as we put people, you know, we as a society, our constructs, you know, people who raise us and influence, you know, it goes back to what I was saying, those filters, right? Yeah. We can begin to create some internal saber-toothed tigers. Mm. Yeah. And being more choice aware gives you the power to realize there is no tiger in those bushes. No mm. one's coming for you. No one's yeah. coming for you. You can feel how you want to feel. And to a certain extent, do whatever you want to do. You absolutely have the, you have the opportunity to feel however you want to feel. Mm. And that doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, how tall or short you are. You know, even in what we may judge, because it all comes from judgment, as the worst situation you can be in. You want to try to, you know, help people to make the best of every situation they're in and look at options to change that, you know? Because it's all about the power of perception and how you see yourself. And I'm going to go back to it again. I'm going to go back to my education. I'm going to go back to everything I've learned. It's all about your filters. Yes. It's all about your filters. It's all about the slides on that projector. <laughs> <laughs> what are they saying? How did they get there? Who put them there? Who chose those? Yeah. Did you know you can choose your own? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think perhaps maybe the last thing that we cover before we get to the back end of the conversation is that you brought up that in IPEC, I think they, you called it level one awareness. And level one awareness might be what you'd call victimhood or... Well, in IPEC, we learned that there's seven levels of energy. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. And I'll just go through all seven in a very quick way. Level one is... I lose, right? Level two is you lose, I win. Level three energy is I win, if you win too, great. Level four energy is you win, how can I help you, right? Level five is it's the win-win. 
we both win or no one wins. Level six is we always win. And level seven is there are no winners or losers. That's all an illusion. And there you have it. It's the simple progression of seven levels of energy. Now, I do want to say, again, everyone has advantages and disadvantages. So we can't automatically look at one as so bad and seven so good. Right. It, at the end of the day, it still comes to how is it serving you? Mm -hmm. Because there's opportunities, like I said, advantages and disadvantages at every single level. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. thanks for thank you for bringing that in. I think that I covered there. There might be some bookmarks that I have for a different conversation, but we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything before I ask a few more back end questions that you want to bring into the conversation today? And anything at all, any dots you're wanting to connect? I'm just going to say that me being here in general is me facing my own fears mm. and vulnerabilities because I've identified that running from my fears, being ashamed of my fears, or dealing with that level of vulnerabilities is not serving me. Yeah. It did for a while. It made me safe. Just finding the comfort zone of, of validation and having people praise me for the version of myself that they saw. It served me so long, but then it just wasn't serving me anymore. And then I had to deal with the shame of not having a sense of direction or a sense of fulfillment. I'm grateful for this opportunity because you've given me another platform to not be afraid. Mm. And, and even though early on I got a little choked up, and I was like, oh, boy, I'm about to start crying. It felt good. Yeah. It felt good to let that go. It felt good to know that I could cry. And guess what? No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, I will end this by saying, again, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. I have a tremendous amount of respect. Every time we've spoken, I've just connected with you. And, um, again, thank you. And... When you tell yourself no, you already know the answer. It's not an original statement. Some people might say it's a cliche, but for me, it's the truth. The more I tell myself no, all I know is no. And so me being here telling myself yes. Mm. So I thank you and I'm grateful. Yeah. Thank you for modeling the vulnerability. Thanks for telling yourself yes. And I appreciate the kind words and it, it's a pleasure having this conversation with you as well. And just a couple more things before we wrap up here. Mm -hmm. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? An everyday ordinary thing that brings me great joy? Mm -hmm. Knowing that I can sit in the corner of my room and do absolutely nothing. Mm. And... Sometimes those are the greatest, most relaxing and common moments of my entire life. Just mm -hmm. letting go. The moments of solitude and stillness can be incredibly, incredibly connecting and beautiful things in a paradoxical way. Because I've spent so much time 
doing, doing, doing. Oh, I appreciate doing nothing more mm -hmm. than you could ever imagine. <laughs> the grace of That's rest. Not, but I have to make sure I don't do it to a default. But of course, yes, that brings me so much joy where I can just sit and just be be with myself and not be afraid of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. That's what I appreciate. There's an organization that you wanted to raise awareness for. I ask every single guest and you wrote Hearts of Gold. Is there is there anything you'd like to say about Hearts of Gold? Uh, I'm going to donate and I invite everyone who's tuned in right now to donate as well. Yeah, I've had I've done some work. I also sat on the associate board for a little bit. And basically Hearts of Gold and Hearts of Gold, excuse me, is an organization that that provides support for women who are raising children in the shelter system. Mm -hmm. Not only do they help them get out of situations they're in and find them a place in the shelter. They also work to get them homes so they can get out of the shelter. So Hearts of Gold, amazing organization. I hope to get more involved with them again post-quarantine. So yeah, Hearts of Gold. It's an amazing organization. If you don't know about it, Google it. You should know about it. And yeah, support that. They're doing great work. Awesome. And Look forward to being a part of that great work again soon. It's an incredible privilege to be able to support it. And I will link to that along with the books and along with what I'm about to ask you in, in the show notes. Where can folks connect with you? The easy way to find me would be to obviously go to my website, which is coreremaster.com. You can also email me directly. And that email is will at coreremaster.com. Beautiful. And I look forward to hearing from everyone who reaches out. <laughs> awesome. I'll, I'll link your LinkedIn and your Instagram profiles as well. And the final question that I ask in my interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in the words of William, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? To me, a meaningful life is to understand that you have choices. Mm -hmm. Period. Stop. Period. Stop. <laughs> well, thank you, William. Thank you so much for... Yes, I'm very grateful. Thank you again. I'm grateful that you made the choice to come on to the show and to share a lot about yourself to vulnerably open up. It is an incredible service. Every single time that someone like yourself puts yourself out there and you can feel that maybe it was on the edge a little bit and that it was not comfortable. It, it's a permission slip for other people to say, you know, we're, we're all unfinished. We're all kind of figuring this stuff out as we go. And we all have parts of ourselves that we're maybe not praised and that we're, we're not so proud of, but we're all human and, and it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for that invitation. Thank you for sharing about your coaching practice and the beautiful way that you hold space and to all the listeners, whenever you are listening, I hope that you have a life full of choice and that whenever you're listening, you have a good day or evening and take good care. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.